going to begin looking this week at the life of Moses and his faithfulness. We won't read, we won't address all of these verses this morning, but let me read the entire section here about Moses as an introduction. Hebrews 11, I'll start in verse 23 through verse 29, and then go to, go to the throne of grace. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land, and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. Would you bow with me? We thank you, our Father, for the songs we have just sung that remind us of your comfort. What a help and sorrow is Jesus, our Savior. While the billows roll over us, even when our hearts are breaking, He, our comfort, helps our souls. What a gift of grace is Jesus, our Redeemer. There is nothing more that heaven could give than Jesus who has been given to us. He is our joy, our righteousness, our freedom, our steadfast love, our deep, our limitless peace. When life is over, our race is complete. Even then, our lips will still repeat, yet not I, but Christ through me. These songs echo what we find in the life of Moses, which we have just read of, and remind us of what this world needs. We've been reminded this week of the starkness of evil, the onslaught of Satan's relentless attempts to destroy mankind and to make us to be hopeless. And every page of this book that is in front of us, including the account of Moses that we will consider this morning, is a reminder of the sufficiency of Christ and the power of His salvation and the authority of you who is seated on the eternal throne to overwhelm Satan, to overwhelm sin, to overwhelm death, and to make us hopeful. And Father, would you make us to be hopeful this morning to not be enticed by temptation, but to pursue and to be relentless in our pursuit 
of Christ our Savior. Would you guide us in understanding as we consider the life of this faithful man? Remarkable in that his life is recounted for us at such length in the Scriptures. And unremarkable in that he is a man just like us. And so might we consider what you worked in him and follow a similar path towards faithfulness to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. In The Paradox of Choice, Barry Schwartz tells of a local of, of a trip to his local grocery store. In that grocery store, he found 285 varieties of cookies. 13 Yeah, wow, is right. Yum. 13 sports drinks. 65 box drinks, 85 children's juices, 75 iced teas. Must have been a southern grocery store. 95 types of chips and pretzels, 15 kinds of bottled water, 80 kinds of different pain relievers, 40 options for toothpaste, 150 lipsticks, and you women all look great. 360 types of shampoo, 90 cold remedies, 230 soups, 75 instant gravies, 275 kinds of cereal, 64 types of barbecue sauce, 230 soups. Uh, Oh, I already said that. I'm repeating myself. 22 kinds of frozen waffles. Says... uh, Kevin DeYoung in his book, Just Do Something, that's why my wife sends me with a very detailed list in the unfortunate event that I am responsible for grocery shopping. If she tells me simply to get baby food with no further instructions, I could come back with anything from liquid peas to dissolvable cherry-flavored wagon wheels. I need specifics because there are just too many ways I can mess things up. Oh, the choices we face. And not just at the grocery store. We're inundated with choices every single day. And not all of the choices we face are innocent. Some of the choices that are before us come with dire consequences if we embrace them. We have seen in Hebrews 11 that living by faith means trusting God, believing that God will accomplish His final purposes for His people and and that we can trust Him to bring us into His heavenly kingdom. We've noted this multiple times, but 1036 really serves as something of the theme of chapter 11. It serves as the introduction to and a guidepost to it, to that chapter. He says there, Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Verse 35, verse 36, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what has been promised. He, he will fulfill His promises. He will bring you to His heavenly kingdom. You can trust that. But trusting God also means that as the life of Moses demonstrates, we also are going to have to make wise choices. We are going to have to choose to live against certain things in order to choose living for Christ and believing Him and His promises. We're going to have to live against the temptations that say there's a better way to accomplish God's plan than trusting God. 
And Moses illustrates for us in verses 23 to 26 how to live against the temptations that entice us to find a pathway to peace and comfort and joy apart from God and apart from Jesus Christ. This section about Moses is the longest section about any one person in this chapter except for the life of Abraham. And the writer of of, of Hebrews thinks often about Moses and he alludes to Moses multiple times throughout this book. In fact, Moses is mentioned more in the book of Hebrews than any other New Testament book except for John, which has one more, um, one more reference to Moses than Hebrews except for John and Acts. The writer acknowledges the significance of Moses' life. Chapter three, verse five, he says, now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of the things which were to be spoken later. So even way back in chapter 3, setting the table for chapter 11 and saying, Moses was faithful as he ministered in his household in Egypt. He was faithful. Yet we do well to note verse 6 of chapter 3. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast to the confidence and the boat and boast and the boast of our hope firm until the end. So even while he acknowledges the faithfulness of Moses and the uh, significance of Moses, even when he notes that in chapter three, saying, yeah, but Christ is greater. And he's setting the table for telling us. That as Moses held on to faith in God, he was really holding on to Christ. And, and Moses was, was setting the pattern for us also for how to hold on to Christ. In this section, in verses 23 to 26, he's going to argue that while the readers are tempted to go back to Moses, to go back to the Old Testament law, to place themselves under uh, the Mosaic Covenant, That Moses, in fact, had rejected that in pursuit of following Christ. He believed, Moses did, and had faith that Christ, what Christ would offer was better than the temptations that were enticing him away from God and away from Christ. So these verses exhort us to live by faith, purposefully choosing Christ over every temptation. To live by faith purposefully, intentionally, volitionally, with perseverance, with endurance, choose Christ over every temptation. And in these verses, verses 23 to 26, we're going to see two particular circumstances in Moses' life in which we must be intentional to choose and follow Christ. He's going to draw attention to two places in particular where we are prone to saying, well... Maybe we just need to soften God's commands a little bit and it'll be okay. We can pull back a little bit and not follow Christ so enduringly. Moses fights against that tenor and temptation. To live by faith, purposefully choose Christ over every temptation. What's the first circumstance? in which we might be tempted, choose to believe Christ when external pressures tempt you to obey. Now, did it strike you when I started reading verse 23 that the writer to Hebrews says, by faith, Moses, when he was born, wait a minute, 
When he was born, he was already exhibiting faith. And that's pretty remarkable. No, that's not what the writer would have us to understand. Yeah, in fact, it's just pointing to the circumstance in which faith was exhibited. But it was Moses' life that was the instigator of the need for faith that was being exhibited. So he says, by faith, Moses, when he was born. So when he was born points to the fact that that this is the circumstance in which faith was being exercised at the beginning of his life. And we know that it wasn't him, one, because he can't exhibit faith at day one of his life. And also the writer is explicit that it's not Moses he's talking about. But he was hidden, so something was done to him. He didn't hide himself in the reeds. But he was hidden for three months by his parents. It was his parents that were exhibiting faith. Now, you remember the circumstances in which they were exhibiting faith. We read that earlier in Exodus chapter 1. You'll remember that there was a new king in Egypt, chapter 1, verse 8. A new king arose over Egypt, and he did not know Joseph. That is, he did not know the history of Egypt as it related to Joseph and all that Joseph did for the nation of Israel, uh, nation of Egypt, and how Israel had brought, been brought to Egypt, and how they had had a place of prominence and significance and a place of favor. He'd forgotten his history, and he'd forgotten the favor that was to be granted to the nation of Israel. And he is fearful of the Israelites. Verse 9, So he said to his people, Behold, the, the people of the sons of Israel are more, and they're mightier than we. Now, it doesn't say he's fearful, but you can hear it, can't you? He's afraid. What are they going to do to us? They outnumber us, and they're stronger than us. So he says, verse 10, Let's deal wisely with them, or they will join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. They're going to they're gonna fight against us, they'll suppress us, and they'll leave and we'll lose our slave labor. Now he's fearful. Verse 12 is a little bit more specific. But the more they afflicted them, the more the Egyptians afflicted the Israelites, the more they multiplied... And the more the Israelites spread out so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. There it's, ex- it's almost explicit, isn't it? They're, they're dreading. They're, they are overtly fearful of the Israelites. And so he comes up with a plan. Verse 16, let's put out all of the baby boys. Let's, let's make sure they're not going to be stronger. And so as soon as a baby is born, you determine male or female, and all the males are killed immediately, instantaneously, no questions asked. Let's take care of it. So great was his hatred. So great was his fear. And at least two of the midwives were unwilling to submit because they feared the Lord. It's clear in the text that they feared him. 117, the midwives feared God and they did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them. Verse 21, because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. So he's made this edict out of fear. They don't fear him. They do fear God. They refuse to obey. And in that context, a man and a woman come together in marriage and a baby is born to them. A man from the house of Levi. We know from the genealogical accounts, though Moses doesn't tell us here, we know that his name is Amram. And he went and married a daughter of Levi. Again, we don't know her name from this context or this book, but we know from genealogy that her name was Jochebed. And the woman conceived and they bore a son. And when they saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. 
So Pharaoh is fearful. fearful. Pharaoh makes a plan. And the family hides Moses. Now I want you to notice what's going on here. Is there is, there is an external pressure being put on the midwives and on the families of all the Israelites of newborn babies, and in particular, the family that's singled out in this story, Moses' family, to do something that would put them in compliance to the government and rebellion against God. And the government is saying to them, if you do what we tell you, life will be better for you. You won't suffer. Obviously, the babies will suffer, but in all, life will be better for you. The pressure's outside of them. This is not something they're desiring, but there's this tremendous force that is compelling them to submit and obey that is outside of them. And the force is compelling them to be particularly disobedient to the standard of God's purposes and God's plan, what God has revealed. And so the writer is using this circumstance to remind the readers of the letter about how to respond when outside forces are putting pressure on them to compel them to comply that might tempt them to leave Christ. Because the same thing was happening for the readers of the Hebrew letter. They also were being persecuted. We know that from chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 32 Remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. What were those like? Partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. You, they were mocked, they were criticized, they were imprisoned, they lost their property. Because the outside forces were saying, if you're going to persist with staying with Christ, then we're going to take all this stuff from you. But if you give up Christ, life will be easy. They were not yet being martyred. We know that from chapter 12, verse 4. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding of blood and you're striving against sin. They have not yet been martyred. But the inference from chapter 12 is that it's coming. And the question is, what are you going to do? How should they respond? And the writer is compelling them to make their choices as it relates to Christ in obedience by looking back in history particularly the life of Moses in these verses, and respond as Moses responded to suffering and for how all people should always respond to suffering. And they responded in two particular ways that we're going to see in just a moment. This is a question that is timely for us as well, isn't it? How should they respond when suffering? How should we Respond when suffering and persecuted. And friends, there is mounting pressure against the true church of Jesus Christ in the culture and in, I hate to use the word, but the broad 
church, quote unquote, of Christ. I heard two stories this week. People relating to me, churches they had been in, where it was said even directly from the pulpit that this book, while helpful, is archaic and not relevant. It needs to be updated. Brothers and sisters, it's not just pressure outside the world, in the world that's pushing on us. We're getting to look really weird to the church as well. And what are we going to do when we are pressured from outside? When people are saying, don't be so vigilant. Don't, don't, don't be so hard. Don't be so resolute. Give a little bit of room. Just soften it a little bit. We're going to do what Moses did and Moses' family. We're going to remember what God has revealed. We're going to remember what God has revealed. So why did Amram and Jochebed protect and hide Moses? Well, the text tells us, verse 23, he was hidden for three months by his parents because, that's the reason, two reasons. The first is because they saw he was a beautiful child. Beautiful means handsome, charming, uncommonly striking. It is what every parent of every newborn thinks about that child when you go to the hospital and visit them. They hold out their child, blotchy and red, bald or too much hair, and it's all going, wink! And they say, isn't he beautiful? Yeah. Every parent thinks their child is beautiful. It's possible that there was something particularly unique about Moses that made them say, wow, this really is a beautiful baby. God has something special for him. But I honestly, I don't think that's what was going on. It's interesting. This word is used very rarely in the New Testament. It is used by Stephen in his sermon in Acts chapter 7. And it's used in the same context. It's used also, in fact, in relation to Moses. Listen to what he says, Acts 7.20. It was at this time that Moses was born and he was lovely, beautiful. That's our word. He was lovely in the sight of God. Uh, He wasn't just beautiful. He was graced. And you got to wonder, and this is, this is way reading in the white parts between the black lettering in your Bible, so I, I am not going to defend this to the death, but you got to wonder, did God reveal to Amram and Jochebed the significance of Moses' life? My very tentative supposition is, yeah, he probably did. And they saw Moses and said, this is a beautifully graced child. That God is set apart for something special. There could be something else going on as well. The midwives were being commanded to put to death all of the newborn babies. They refused to do it. Why did they refuse to do it? 
because 117 of Exodus, the midwives feared God and they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. They feared God. They understood to take that life is murder. They knew that from Genesis, from the command of Mos- uh, from the command of Noah in Genesis 9:6, that murder is an act of rebellion against God. And so I think perhaps if God didn't speak to Amram and Jochebed, perhaps what happened is they look at Moses when he is born and they say, this child is made in the image of God and we cannot kill him. We will hide him no matter what we have to endure and suffer because of it. We will protect him. So listen to this. Whether the parents were operating on particular a particular revelation that came to them, God speaking to them and telling them, hey, Moses, your son is going to be used by me in a particular way to redeem the nation of Israel. Or whether they just understood the revelation of God as it was given through Moses that murder is evil. In either case, whatever they were following, they were following the revealed word of God. God has spoken. And they will not deviate from what God has dictated. They were acting on God's revealed will. And brothers and sisters, this is, this is helpful for us. Because when pressured, and we will be pressured, and we are being pressured, I would say every day, it is appropriate for us to ask the question, is this edict a violation of God's truth? Is this compelling me to go away from something that God has revealed Or can I do this in good conscience before God and be fully obedient to Him? The pattern of Amram and Jochebed is helpful for us as we face outside pressures. They did a second thing that we can emulate, and that is to remember the fear of God. Notice the second reason that the writer gives that they hid Moses and, end of verse 23, They were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, the verse does not say they didn't believe the king's edict. The verse does not say they didn't believe the king had ability to persecute them if they didn't obey. They just simply said, it simply says they weren't afraid of him. He cannot take from us that which is ultimate. Ultimately, and undoubtedly, they were probably convinced that Pharaoh could take action against them if they were discovered. Not only could take action, but would take action against them. Again, this is a little bit of conjecture. But why did they not fear Pharaoh? And the text doesn't tell us why they didn't fear him, but I think there's there's multiple inferences as to why they didn't fear him, and that is because they feared the Lord. The text is clear in Exodus 1, verse 17 and verse 21, that the midwives did fear God. They acted because they feared God. And then Amram and Jochebed do the very same thing that the midwives did. And it is not a stretch to say they didn't run from Pharaoh because they had found their refuge in God. They were not overly concerned about his ultimate ability to harm them. This this is, in fact... Exactly where the writer to the Hebrews will go a couple chapters later. 13.6, 
we will confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? They didn't fear Pharaoh because they did fear the Lord and they understood that Pharaoh could not do anything ultimate against them. They found their refuge in him. This is exactly what Jesus himself commanded in Matthew chapter 10. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Brothers and sisters, this is, this is a really remarkable demonstration of faith by a couple that's really ordinary. And you say, well, Terry, aren't you being just a little bit condescending to say they're ordinary? Well, maybe. But I think... Both Moses and the writer to Hebrews want us to understand that these are just a couple of people who happen to be saved by God and that there's nothing remarkable in them because Moses doesn't name them, though he names the midwives. Isn't that interesting? He gives us the name of the midwives, but not his parents. And the writer to the Hebrews, though he would have known from the genealogies what their names were, he also didn't give us their names. It is as if to say, this is not remarkable faith. This is what anonymous people, ordinary people, plain followers of God do in following God. I want you to notice as well that this same faith that Moses' parents had what was instilled in Moses as well by them. Verse 27, we'll see this next week. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. His parents didn't fear Pharaoh, and he didn't fear Pharaoh. And so when he left, he wasn't operating in fear of Pharaoh but he was operating in obedience to God. So when we summarize these verses, we can see that Moses' parents hid Moses. They were acting by faith, trusting that God would protect the child. And even if Moses were discovered and they were discovered to be disobedient, they believed that it is better to obey God than to rebel against God and obey the king. And they were willing to believe that goodness, even if they had to suffer for it. They also trusted that God would protect the faith of Moses when he was adopted. Did you notice this as we were reading? The child grew. So, isn't this just cool the way God works. So they hide Moses to keep him away from Pharaoh. Pharaoh's daughter discovers him. And Pharaoh's daughter says, well, I can't feed him, so I'll give him to somebody that can feed him. Oh, look, there's a woman that's ready to nurse a child. Let me pay her. It just happens to be Moses' mother. And she's paying her to take care of her own child. And then notice verse 10. The child grew and she, Jochebed, brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She willingly entrusted her son 
to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's court, Pharaoh's daughter, Pharaoh's training, Pharaoh's education. The text doesn't say it, but it's clear. They believe that God can protect Moses and preserve him in faith, even while he's being trained in a pagan religion and pagan philosophy. Well, this is, this is a, a couple that has deep faith in God. To preserve them. Oh brothers. Oh sisters. The world is pressing in. And when it presses. Have faith. When you are tempted. To disobey. To keep on persevering. With Christ. So that's one circumstance. That we see in Moses life. There's a second circumstance. When he was tempted. To turn away from God to turn away from the anticipation of Christ. And that is, choose to believe Christ when internal desires tempt you to disobey. Verse 24, we find a turning to Moses. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, we know from Stephen, Stephen refers to this same event in his sermon, Acts 7.23, tells us that he was about 40 years of age at this point. So he's all grown up. And it makes it clear that his faith, or excuse me, the faith of his parents had now become his faith. It wasn't just acting on the basis of what mom and dad say to do. He's an individual man. He's a mature man. And this is a decision that he's making volitionally out of the fullness of his chronological maturity and the maturity of his faith. And the rest of this section, verses 24 to 29, deal with everything that Moses does. Four times it says... That he acted by faith. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused. That's verse 24. Verse 27, by faith, he left Egypt. By faith, verse 28, he kept the Passover. Verse 29, by faith, they passed through the Red Sea. By faith, by faith, by faith. And verse 24 draws draws our attention to the fact that he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. That picks up the account in Exodus 2:10 and following where he defends the Israelite who is being beaten by the Egyptian and he kills the Egyptian that's verses 11 to 14 of Exodus 2 and then in Exodus 2:15 he goes to Midian and while there likely would have been consequences for Moses killing the Egyptian the writer to the Hebrews suggests that there was something else that was going on in Moses' mind and heart that compelled him to leave and to not obey and to not align himself with Pharaoh. And and what's going on in Moses' mind and heart internally gives us instruction for when we have internal desires to go away from Christ. When there's something in our flesh that says, it's just this one thing, it'll be okay. How do we respond? Well, we do what Moses did. Verse 24, we remember our spiritual affiliation. Remember your spiritual affiliation. Notice verse 24, by faith when Moses had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. That word refuse has the idea of having disdain for something. It is a clear 
unequivocal denial. This is not who I am. I am not Pharaoh's grandson. I am not an Egyptian. I will not follow the Egyptian gods. He's resolute. He is dogmatic. As Steve Lawson says, he is bulldogmatic. I will not succumb. I will not align. I will not identify myself as being Pharaoh's daughter. Now, there is some question looking back at history as, as to who Pharaoh's daughter really is. There could be a wide variety of people to whom it could refer. It is probably most likely, though, that this is Hatshepsut. Hatshepsut was Pharaoh's daughter, and she ended up becoming co-regent after her father died for a period of time. So as Moses is looking at the circumstances, he looks at his grandfather, who may be on the way out. He looks at his mother, who is positioned to come alongside and behind her father and ascend to the throne over Egypt. And he could look at that and say, I'm next. And everything that would come along with that, it would have been exceedingly enticing to be drawn to that royal position, the desire for ease, for power, for authority, for wealth, for position and prominence. And it says, Moses refused it all intentionally and volitionally. But not only that, notice what else the text tells us. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather, so he refused this, but he chose something else. What did he choose? To endure ill treatment with the people of God. He said, I am not a king or in the king's lineage. I am a slave and in the slave's lineage. He went from the top to the bottom. And notice, it is with absolute intentionality, he refused and he chose. He chose ill treatment as a slave. What kind of ill treatment? Well, we can read chapter 1 of Exodus and find what kind of ill treatment he could expect. It's the kind of thing that every follower of God has always anticipated and always endured. We don't have time to go through it. Maybe I'll write something on my blog about it this week. But suffering is the norm for the believer. It's always been that way. Suffering is to be expected. Suffering is to be anticipated. Jesus will say in John chapter 15, and you're familiar with this, verse 18, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Because it hates me, it will hate you. You can expect it. It's the norm. And Moses embraced that. He chose suffering. It was not thrust on him, but he volitionally made the choice after careful deliberation. His choice was not accidental. No one made the choice for him. He knowingly embraced the suffering. And when I say that, I, I don't say, well, the believer always has to choose suffering. No, we don't have to choose suffering. But brothers and sisters, sometimes when we're going to follow Christ, it means we're choosing suffering. 
And we have to not shy away from that. If being a follower of Christ means I suffer, okay. Now, if being a follower of Christ means I don't have to suffer, well, that's okay too. But notice that Moses was completely unafraid of the suffering that would come from identity with God and ultimately identity with Christ. He was not internally attracted to what could have been his identity as an Egyptian, but kept his identity with God and embraced his identity as a follower of God. When you're tempted internally, oh, brothers and sisters, remember your identity. Remember who you are in Christ and what God has given to you in Christ so that you don't go to that temptation. There's a second thing to remember. Remember that sin's pleasures are passing. Verse 25, he chose ill treatment rather than enjoying the passing pleasures of sin. Now, there could be all kinds of things that the writer of the Hebrews is thinking about as he's thinking about the pleasures of sin. And we could go to a list like Galatians 5, 19 to 21 and talk about all of the, the works of the flesh and the fruit of the flesh and the manifestations of the flesh and licentious living. And, and certainly that could be uh, included in that list. And certainly those things are passing. But I don't think that's what is going on here. I think what the writer would have us to understand is that Moses had had revealed to him a particular calling of God on his life. And if he were to follow after Pharaoh and pursue position in Pharaoh's kingdom in Egypt, it would be rebellion against God. It would be sin for him. Would it be pleasurable? Oh, sure. Never have to cook another meal. Meals always brought to him. You need to pay a bill? Hey, Joe, would you pay a bill? There's never a worry about money. He's got all of the resources. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. This is, this is the high water mark of, of Egypt's history. And he would have been king at that time. All the glories, all the pleasures. And he looked at it and said, yeah, I could have that. But it's passing. It doesn't endure. Brothers and sisters, no matter what the sin is, no matter what the temptation is, it always passes. Is there pleasure in sin? Well, yeah. If there wasn't pleasure in sin, we wouldn't do it. We'd say, well, that's stupid. And I know I shouldn't say stupid, but it's stupid, isn't it? Who would do that? But it has its moment of pleasure where we say, ah, this is good. That explosion of anger in that moment just feels so liberating. I'm so free. And that moment of covetousness and I, I get to get this thing I've been wanting and pursuing, it feels good in that moment. When we don't think about where things will be a year and two and three and four and five from now. There is no ultimate pleasure for Moses in avoiding the call of God. 
and shirking his spiritual duty. And brothers and sisters, there is no ultimate pleasure in engaging in any enticement to sin for us either. It won't last. It won't endure. And that's what Moses remembered. It kept him faithful to God. And we likewise will maintain our faithfulness when we will remember the passing nature of sin's pleasure. Remember that the world's rewards are passing. He refused the treasures of Egypt. He considered, verse 26, the reproach of Christ greater richness. It's better to be abused, maligned, persecuted for Christ than to have all of the treasures of Egypt. Again, this is the height of Egypt's power. Egypt made 16 campaigns into Western Asia at this time frame. And the region of Syria and Palestine became an Egyptian province at that time. And all of the religious influences and wealth and prominence of captured peoples of Canaan were flooded into Egypt at that time and strengthened her greatly. There was an alliance around this time with northern Mesopotamia that strengthened Egypt and gave her incredible peace and worldwide superiority and power. She was the ruling agent in the world. During this time frame, many beautiful temples and buildings were built in the nation of Egypt. Nations like Babylon came to Egypt for gold and said, well, you share our gold, and they bought their gold from Egypt. And you've seen, perhaps, just a little bit of the wealth of Egypt from one of the pharaohs that followed shortly after this, Tutankhamun, King Tut. And if you've ever been to one of the displays, it's astounding, the wealth that even a very simple pharaoh had. It says one commentator, the increasingly splendid temples of the gods enjoyed rich endowments in land and settlements in Egypt and abroad and a goodly share of the spoils of conquest. This is a well-positioned kingdom. And Pharaoh says, no, no thank you. I don't want that. I'm not interested. It's passing. You know that saying, all that glitters is not gold? Well, brothers and sisters, all that's gold is not gold. And we look at things and say, oh, that's of immense value. I always laugh. There's one particular show that, a renovation show that Regina and I like to watch. And uh, so we'll watch that sometimes, you know, maybe once a week we'll watch an episode. And he goes in and he makes these corrections and he drives a piece of wood into the ground and, you know, sports the, the house that's on top of it. And he said, this building's going to last forever. And I go, yeah, well, maybe like 20 years until you have to replace that post again. And we all, we look at things and we go, that's a treasure. It's eternal. No. Gold, pure gold. It's eternal. No, it's just paving stones for heaven. It's just pavement. It's nothing that endures. It's not lasting. It doesn't carry its weight into eternity. And when we see the rewards of, inter- of, of earthly enticements, we've got to ask the question, is this going to last? Is this going to endure? Will this hold me up into and through eternity? 
There's one last means by which Moses fought against the internal desire for prominence in Egypt, and that is he remembered the riches of Christ's rewards. Notice, he considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. Moses considered. He made careful inquiry. This was not an impulsive decision, but it was a reasoned decision after evaluating all of the options. And after considering all of the options, he said, give me the reproach of Christ. Give me the accusations, the insults, the persecution. That's what I want. Now, it's interesting that the writer to Hebrews says he considered the reproach of Christ. The word translated Christ refers to Jesus Christ, the God-man. But it also can refer much more broadly to the Messiah. But the question is, how can, how can Moses, who is about 1,500 years before Jesus Christ on, was on the earth, how can he embrace the reproaches of Christ? How can he be identified with Christ's reproaches? Well, he knew that he would be a deliverer for Israel against Stephen. And Acts 7 verse 25 tells us that he understands that he's going to be a deliverer for Israel. But he understands as well his humanity. And he understands that he is not the ultimate deliverer. But there is an ultimate deliverer coming. He alludes to him in Deuteronomy 18. The Lord your God, verse 15, Deuteronomy 18, 15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, and you will listen to him. There's someone bigger coming. Someone bigger coming who also will be rejected. But Moses says, I'm willing to align myself with him because of his greatness. And because of what is coming after him, notice what it says at the end of verse 26, because he was looking to the reward. He wanted the reward. Now notice this. Who's the writer of the Hebrews writing to? He's writing to Hebrews, people who are Jewish by ethnicity and by faith, who have converted to Christ, are being persecuted, and now are being tempted to go back to the Mosaic law and avoid Christ. And the writer turns that exactly on its head and says, the one to whom you want to go back, Moses, went to the one you want to leave, Christ. So if you want to be faithful to Moses, be faithful to Christ. Why? Because there is a reward coming. Moses believed that God would provide an ultimate reward. This is, this is the theme of this section. Verse 6, Without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is, and He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. It's, the same, it's a form of that same word, rewarder. Moses is looking to the reward. He believes God will take care of those who are His. He's looking, intentionally, considering, deciding, following, And he's willing to endure suffering now so that he can get something greater later. He's fixated on the reward of heaven and the promise of Christ. He trades temporary pleasures for ultimate rewards. 
He's willing to sacrifice and endure suffering now to get the great pleasure and treasure later. He was engaging in what we might call self-denial, which John Piper helpfully defines like this. Biblical self-denial means denying yourself lesser joys so you don't lose the big ones. Which is the same as saying, really pursue joy. Don't settle for anything less than lasting and full joy. And that's what Moses pursued when he was tempted from outside and from within to leave Christ. And when we are tempted outside and when we are tempted internally to walk away from Jesus, remember the example of Moses who denied himself temporary pleasure to get ultimate joy. Father, thank you for the reminder of Moses and his greatness. And thank you for the gift of grace that his life is to remind us not only of what it means to live by faith in general, but to live by faith when we are pressured to leave the faith. And might we emulate Moses and his parents, Amram and Jochebed, when we are pressured from outside. And might we emulate Moses when we are pressured from inside, when our own fleshly desires entice us to give up on Jesus. Might we be faithful. Father, now we come to the table of communion And we would ask that you would continue to examine us. Examine us to see whether we are in the faith that we can take this symbol of our fellowship with you and our union with you in good conscience. And examine us to see if we are holding on to some sin instead of on to Christ. And see if we really want our sin and don't want Jesus. And Father, if we are not in the faith, would you, by your grace, save us? And might we turn to you in trust, clinging, holding on to the only reason for hopefulness in this world and hopefulness to stand before you, and that is that Christ has absolved us of our sin. And Father, if we are believers, might you examine us to see if there are sins of omission, things that we should have done that we haven't done, sins of commission, things that we have done that we shouldn't have done, or if there are sins of intentionality and desire, longings, motivations that we have had, internal struggles that have enticed us away from you. And then, Father, would you be so gracious as to cleanse us from those sins, to wash us away, wash those things away by the blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you for his blood, a blood that cleanses us from all sin. There is no sin that overwhelms the blood of Christ. 
All sin is subjected to Christ's blood, defeated by, washed over, cleaned up, redeemed, bought back, made useful by Christ's blood. And so we thank you, Father, for the washing of this blood of Christ and his salvation on the cross. Thank you that we are new creatures in Christ and have been renewed to Christ. We thank you that we are accepted in Christ, that we are adopted into his family. We thank you that we have been declared holy and are being progressively sanctified. We thank you that we have union with Christ that gives us fellowship with Christ. We thank you for the gifts of Christ and the fruit of Christ's spirit that resides within us. And so as we come to this table, we thank you for the memory of our crucified and risen Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.